Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Cheating the System, the Story of David <clears throat> and Bathsheba. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here once again, uh, as, as it always is. And as Ron has just uh, introduced, the title of my message today is Cheating the System, the Story of David and Bathsheba. And just to give you a little background information, uh, I have recently just went through this story. I actually, as many of you know, I'm a teacher. And I have had the honor this year in a public school, which is a little unusual, and it probably will seem unusual to you, is I actually teach a Bible literacy course. Uh, in the public education sector. Of course, this course that I teach is to high school students. It is not a devotional course. It is a purely academic historical course. It is uh, a course that has actually been created by an organization called the Bible Literacy Project. And the, I guess you would say, the position of the textbook that we use is that the Bible is the undisputed most influential book in the Western world. And, and, and it really doesn't have anything to do with, you know, do you agree with the Bible? Do you disagree with the Bible? That is just a fact. And we know that that is true. We know that there's not been any other book, any other piece of literature that's been more influential than that of the Bible. And in the course of this uh, class, uh, which, by the way, I might add that it's a pretty good course. It's actually, we have a textbook that's very favorable uh, to the Bible, very, you know, very positive to the Bible, and it doesn't deal with, is this true or is this untrue? Rather, it just deals with the story and what's going on, and it's a rather challenging class because, as you can imagine, there's about 18 weeks in a semester for high school. And it's very difficult to cover the entire Old Testament, because that's kind of the pace I have set, is the Old Testament in the beginning semester, and then the second semester, the New Testament. And so you have these large books in the Old Testament that I'm trying to get through. And the other challenge, of course, is how do I get these students' attention? You know, a lot of these stories, believe it or not, uh, at the for 16-year-olds, for 15-year-olds, not the most interesting thing to them. Or so they think it is not. And just a few weeks ago, I was able to go through this story that we're going to go through today, the story of David and Bathsheba, and it was so much more natural because there's so many things that are in this narrative, that are in this story, that sometimes when you just read over it quickly, you don't stop and try to think, you know, what exactly is this individual that we know so well, David, thinking? What is going through his mind? What is, you know, what is his mind, what is the sequence from this idea to that idea? And it's very fascinating. And, and as I was coming up with this message and reading through this story, I came up with this term or this, you know, slogan I kind of, you know, we all hear, cheating the system. Because that's just what kind of kept coming to my mind. Of course, I'm going to try to you know, bridge the gap of what I'm trying to, you know, say and how I see that this image of trying to cheat the system is, 
you know, came to my mind in trying to develop this message. And I was just thinking about the world we live in, and you can turn on TV, you can watch every commercial you can imagine, and we live in a world that is basically can do everything possible to cheat the system. I mean, just think about it at the, you know, at the small level. Just, you, you turn on the TV and you see commercials of some scheme on how to get rich quick. You know, uh, buy this program, read this book, do these things, put money over here, put money over there, start this business, and you'll be a millionaire. And you're going to cheat the system. Everyone else is going to work really hard. Everyone else is just getting lucky. But this is a tried and true method. You need to buy it for only five payments of $150. And that's what people, and that's the world we live in. We look on TV and we see things like this all the time. How about in the fitness or the weight loss world? Buy this pill. Take this drink. Use this piece of workout equipment. Don't go to the gym and work hard and sweat. Don't diet and exercise. Just take this pill. Or just do this exercise, uh, uh, I guess you would say, device for five minutes. And I remember about ten years ago, some of you guys might have remembered this, but they were advertising on TV these little contraptions, these machines. You'd hook them up to your stomach for your abdominals, and you'd turn it on, and it would have these electrical shocks. You just sit there, hang out, watch TV, and you're getting an ab workout. And you have to put this, like, gel stuff on it, because it's, really it's kind of like, you know, you'd go get it, you know, sometimes they use, they do use this, like, in physical therapy a lot of times to try to, you know, I remember whenever I was in high school playing football, and I hurt my ankle, and the, the uh, sports trainer did put one of these, electrical devices on my ankle and the purpose of it was is try to stimulate some of the muscles around there but not to strengthen them but just to keep them from you know getting to I guess you'd say too much muscle atrophy and all of a sudden someone came up with an idea well let's let's rev up that electrical circuit you know stick it on someone's muscle and they can get an ab workout or some sort of workout without even having to do anything so those are just kind of the the basic easy to see get you know, cheat the system, get rich quick. You know, you know everyone else is, is trying to do it the tried and true way, the, the natural way through hard work, but here's a secret way, a way where you can kind of bypass all that unnecessary stuff and just do this. But what happens when it even gets deeper than that? And it becomes dirty. And it becomes, obviously, wrong and shameful and sinful. I mean, think about it. Think about the tax evasion. Big multi-million, you know, you know, billionaire companies that are, you know, trying to have all this money and somehow cheat the system. Maybe there's a loophole. Maybe there's a way we can disguise how much we made this year and not have to pay as much in taxes as we should. How about people that actually go out and commit a mur murder or, 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 or something like that, or, or burglary? Most people that go out and commit these heinous crimes don't do them and then go, I did it. The plan usually from the get-go is, I am going to do this for such and such goal or because I want this or I want that or I desire that. And my plan is, is that I will somehow be able to conceal it. I'll get away with it. You know, get away, you know getting away with murder, as we say, it's, a, it's an illusion we use in our conversation as someone who gets away with metaphorically murder, you know, things that are really big deal, but they don't have to you know, pay the consequences 
of the act that they use. Of course, adultery, which is what we're going to look at today. Obviously, we see we live in a world where infidelity is rampant. And most of the time we see this happen, it's attempted to be concealed. The person who does it tries to do it in secret. We have to ask the question, why? Because people don't want to face the consequences of their actions. The shame, the maybe the, the loss of reputation. And we're going to see that with one of the most, I guess you would say, heroic individuals of the entire Bible. Let's turn to 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. And let's begin to talk about this story of, of King David. And you know, King David, we, we've heard a lot about this guy. His, Bible, his name is all throughout the Bible. Even with Jesus Christ, one of his titles is the son of David. And it's interesting in looking at this, and we all know some of the famous stories of King David. You know, King David, David and Goliath, and he was just this young shepherd boy. And you had Saul, this king, that's you know, supposed to be the, 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 the Goliath of the Israelites. The obvious one that should be facing the champion of the Philistines. And you have this little young shepherd boy coming out and saying, I'll fight this giant. And, and even today when we you know, go in our secular culture, we hear that term. Maybe there's a, you know, something going on. Maybe there's like a, a sporting event where there's a really good team or, or, or maybe it's a football game, some really good team and some really not so good team. And the announcer comes on and says that this is a real David and Goliath story. Or this is, a you know, this is kind of like facing the giants, you know, looting back to that story of this young shepherd boy that faced this unformidable, undefeated you know, champion of the Philistines that there's no way could ever be done by such a, such a young little boy as David. But even though that story and other stories are so famous, so popular among the, the biblical stories of David, probably one of the most known and effective, most penetrating stories is actually about one of his moral failures, the story we're getting ready to read today. And it all starts in the middle of Israel fighting a group of people called the Ammonites. Let's pick it up in 2 Samuel verse 1. It says, in the spring... In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And we see several things real quick that, that the text is trying to give us. Some, some details. First of all, we know what time of year it is. It's the season of the spring. In ancient Near Eastern uh, culture or time, it was common for kings to go out to battle during the springtime. Reason is, more fair weather. A lot of times these soldiers would be gone a very long time, and they would have to live off the land that they journeyed through. And of course, food would be much more abundant in this time of year as opposed to starting in the wintertime. But the other detail is even more striking, and that is, is that David, doing something that is kind of unusual for him, Staying in Jerusalem while his army is going off to fight. Up until this point, it's always talked about how David went and led his troops into battle. Continuing on in the story, we're going to see that David's decision to stay home 
is going to result in the unexpected. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, it says, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and, and he slept with her. In parentheses, it tells us a little bit of something. It says, Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And right here, obviously, we see several details. Several things have taken place. First of all, we see that David has allowed himself to succumb to the temptation of, of adultery. He sees this woman. He covets her. He thinks she's beautiful. And even after finding out her relationship status, even though he, he discovers after hearing word about who this woman was, that she was a married woman, he proceeds to commit adultery. And the plot even thickens when the writer of 2 Samuel tells the reader that not only is this woman married, but she's married to Uriah the Hittite, one of the individuals fighting for David in the Israelite army. In 2 Samuel, we don't know a lot about Uriah the Hittite, but in 2 Samuel 23, we do know that Uriah was named among David's most mightiest of men. He was known for his bravery and for his courage. So we see that it just gets more and more and more intense as we read through this story. Something else that the text tells us in parentheses in the parentheses, in that parenthetical detail that's presented, is it says in verse 4, Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And this lets us know two things. This lets us know that this woman had just finished what would be considered her menstrual cycle. Right before the act took place with her and David. And this tells David, this tells the reader, this tells everybody two things. David... Is the, is, the, is the father of this child. There's no way that Uriah can be the father. Uriah is off at battle. Uriah has not been home. This woman has just finished her ceremonial menstrual cleansing. And now the only possible candidate for the father of this child is David. And now the clock is ticking. What is David going to do David now understands the bind that he is in. And his response is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11, verses 5 through the rest of the chapter, verse through 27. So, obviously, we can just try to put ourselves in David's shoes. He knows what he has done. He knows that he has committed a sin. He knows that he's committed a sin that has had a, that's going to have a very, very obvious consequence. Her husband's off at war, and it's going to be awful hard to explain how she got pregnant. So David devises this plan. He decides that, you know, if, if I am going to be able to cover this up, I am somehow going to have to make it look like I have nothing to do with this woman. I have nothing to do with this woman being pregnant. It's her husband's. Of course, the story tells us that Uriah 
sends a letter to Joab or messengers and says, Joab, David wants to see Uriah the Hittite. And the whole time it's getting Uriah the Hittite sent back to David is all under this guise of, well, I'm just wanting someone to come back and report to me how the battle's going. Of course, in David's mind, he's thinking that basically if I can get Uriah the Hittite to come back, I can, you know, ask him how the war's going, how the battle's going, and then, of course, he'll go home to his wife, he'll sleep with his wife, and she'll be pregnant with Uriah the Hittite's son, or, or daughter, or it would be son, but it, Uriah the Hittite's child, not mine. But when we read on in the story, it just keeps getting worse for David. Uriah the Hittite comes back, and David assumes that this man is going to go back and go see his wife and sleep in his own bed. But Uriah, being righteous, the exact opposite, the exact contrast to what David is doing, refuses to go home. Instead of going home, he refuses to go home. And in verse 11, when David asks why Uriah chooses not to go home, he says, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He's being honorable. He's looking at this opportunity to come home, not as an opportunity to go and enjoy the comforts of his wife, the comforts of his own house that he lived in, while his men, and while the Ark of the Covenant is in the middle of the battle. Of course, David, reading on in the story, is frustrated, tries to get Uriah drunk even, hoping that maybe if I get him drunk, maybe if I get him a little lit, that he will lose those senses. He maybe will lose that self-discipline. Maybe he'll forget about this. He'll forget about this honorable stuff. You know, I've got to do something. I've got to get his mind off of this honorable stuff so I can get him home. I need to get him to sleep with his wife. People are going, this is going to be so embarrassing. What am I going to do? And this is what is going on, obviously, in David's mind. Of course, this doesn't work. So David has to now... Decide on plan B. And plan B is going to get worse than even plan A. Now, most of us have read this story and we know what takes place afterwards. Plan B is a, is a plan that is going to have grave consequences, even more consequences than what is already going to take place. So David, in his frustration, he's in a, an extreme situation and in extreme situations... He takes a desperate and extreme measure. He sends Uriah back to the battle with a letter. And in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 14, continuing on here, it says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. 
when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Of course, in David's mind, it's all over. Plan solved. Immediately after this, in verse 26, we are told that when Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and bore him a son. But the thing David done, had done displeased the Lord. In David's mind, this is all over. This is what I did. I'm going to put it behind me now, and I'm going to move on. Obviously, David is trying to save his reputation. He knows what he did was wrong, and he did whatever he had to do to try to salvage embarrassment, avoid the consequences. But in the very next chapter, in chapter 12, we see that this is not the case. We see that there is no cheating the system when it comes to the realm of Almighty God. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him, and with his children. It ate all his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare, for one, uh, prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's, for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, and the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in this sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your, and he shall, he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the son. And so we see the consequence that comes on David. As we move through the story of David's life, we see all these things come true. We even see more as we read through here. We see that the son, or the sword rather, would not depart from David. 
in his house. We see this take place with his son Absalom in the episode of that story with his son Absalom. We also see that his wives would be taken from him and given to his neighbor. We see this with the story of Absalom. And we also see that that son that was conceived with Bathsheba, that, that, that child would die. We see that there were great consequences. So we have to ask ourselves, what principles can we learn from this story? Today I'm going to present just a couple. And by no means is this a comprehensive list. There are several things that we can contemplate and try to consider. First of all, one of them is is that arrogance leads to sin. Arrogance leads to sin. Did David's success go to his head? Why did David stay at home? Is it possible that David thought, you know what, I've, I've been doing pretty good. I usually go out to battle with them. I'm going to stay in Jerusalem. I've had a lot of success. And I'm going to just relax. I'm going to just, you know, kick my feet up. I don't need to mess with that over there. Joab, i got confidence in him. Did his success make him feel like maybe possibly he was above the law? Maybe he was a little bit better than he really was. Did his power go to his head? We know that David was a very powerful man. David could do pretty much anything he wanted. He could tell his messenger or his servant, go get this person, that person came. Go send this person here, that person would go be sent there. He could send a letter to Joab, his commander in the army, and say, put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. And Joab immediately would do exactly what David had said. Power sometimes can tempt people to use it for their own desires, for their own advantages. Let's think about that in our life. Is there any part of our life that sometimes we use our power to our own advantage at the expense of other people? You may say, well, I'm really not in that kind of position. I'm not, you know, I'm not a boss of anybody. I'm not you know, this or I'm not that. What about our marriage? Can we use sometimes our power over our spouse and marriage for our own gain? How about our parents? Or as parents, can we abuse our children? We have power over our children. Can we sometimes abuse that power for our own advantage? How about as bosses with our employees, if that, if that applies to any of us? How about even just as friends, with our close relationships with people? Do we ever use maybe the power that we have? Maybe it's just a psychological power. Maybe it's not actually, you know, you know, the same exact way that David had power over people. Obviously, it's not. None of us are kings. But is there things in life that sometimes we do have some power over maybe some people or groups, and is there a temptation to abuse that for our own gain? Because arrogance can always breed this sin. And it seems to be the case, the way that the narrative goes, the way that David is being portrayed, there seems to be a little of arrogance that has led David down the wrong path. 
How about the danger of prosperity? You know, it's really easy to get wrapped up in the adversities of life. Life is tough. We get tired of problems. We get tired of having to face these things. You know, we have money problems, or we have health ailments. We have all of these things, and they're tough. And of course, we should never ask for these things. But sometimes, if we don't, and, and when we don't, have a little bit of these adversities in our lives, sometimes that's the time it's easy to let our spiritual guard down. You know, consider the story of Adam and Eve which is the exact same path that David took. Eve and, or Adam and Eve, they had everything they could want. They lived in paradise. They had all of these things. They had a direct access to God. They were living in perfection. But the one thing that they couldn't have, they desired. The one thing that they were forbidden to have, they wanted. And this is exactly how David's life was. He's a king. Look at the life he's living. He's living in the king's palace. He's probably living in the most, you know, the best house in all of Israel. He had the finest foods, drank from probably the best cups of the whole land. He was the king of Israel. He had the best of the best of the best. And yet, just as the passage says, if you, you know, as Nathan's revealing the message that he's wanting to give David, he says, and if you had wanted more, I would have given it to you. But that's not enough. That's not enough. And that's something we have to realize. That sometimes prosperity, really, it just leads us into this spiritual snowball of really just wanting more and more and more. Sometimes it is the peacetime of our lives that is the hardest and most tempting for us to neglect God. As quoted by a minister that I heard over this, this message once, Bob Deffenbaugh, David never did better than he did in adversity and weakness. And conversely, David never did worse than he did in prosperity and power. Does this mean that we pray for, for you know, to be poor? We pray for poverty? Of course not. But it makes us realize that sometimes it's the peacetime in life. Sometimes it's in our success where the greatest trial or the greatest test in adversity really is. We have to remember that. The second point, the second spiritual principle that we can look at is that the consequences of sin affect more than just ourselves. And this is obvious from this story. In David's case, we know that this action of David it led to not just David being affected but, and Bathsheba, the two people involved, but many others. Uriah the Hittite, he's dead now. He's been murdered by David. And possibly even other people could have been unnecessarily killed. And we just think about this. Joab gets that letter. We don't know exactly how it could have you know, transpired. But maybe there was an unnecessary battle or an unnecessary formation within the ranks of the battle. And because this new message that came to Joab about putting Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle, maybe Joab had to somehow come up with a, uh, some sort of campaign to put several men in danger. We do not know. But we do know that several people are going to be affected, including Bathsheba's child and David's child. And as the result of David and their sin, 
this child does not live. Israel. Israel is reliant upon their king. Reliant upon their king to lead them as a nation. And now David, this king, is now being, bearing the consequences of having a house divided. This is inevitably and will obviously affect Israel because he is the leader of the Israelites. So we see and we know this, the consequences of sin are not just something that is going to affect us, but can affect many of us, can affect many people involved. The next point, just real quickly, is that unrepentant sin grows. We're just going to go through this quickly. We know from James chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, it says, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And we see that this is a sequence in David's situation. He went from being tempted to coveting to committing adultery to lying to cover it up to eventually murdering. Several of the things that Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19, out of the seven things that it says that God hates, we can just see several of these elements David right here commits. All because he continued on trying to cover up this transgression which he committed. It almost seems that sin eventually will lead continually and continually and continually into more and more sin. Just a real quick analogy. I was thinking about this and, and, and sometimes when we want to cover things up, all we do is get ourselves in worse trouble. In the case of David, that was what took place. But there actually are real stories in real life, like with police officers. Maybe you've heard these before. I've heard stories like this. I've watched uh, some of those shows like called Cops, and maybe a cop sees someone without a signal light on or something or, or, or not having a seatbelt. A relatively insignificant infraction, right? Maybe a you know, $100 ticket, whatever. But for some reason, the person driving the car decides that they don't want to pull over. And of course, they don't want to face maybe the insignificant consequence that they're going to have to have because they didn't have a seatbelt on or they didn't use a turn signal. And they ends up into a, this high-speed chase. And at the end of the story, instead of it being maybe a $100 ticket, it ends up being a prison sentence. It snowballs. And it was all unnecessary. And it shows us that when sin is not dealt with, when unrepentant sin continues to go, it leads and leads and more to more and more and more sin. The last point, I'm just going to leave you. This is something obviously we, we could all probably concur with, is that sins can be forgiven, but it does not necessarily mean that the consequences won't remain. There's murderers in jail. Of course, there are people in jail for burglary, other infractions that are obvious Crimes against not just the secular law, but God's law, of course. And can they be forgiven? Yes. But does forgiven mean that they might not have to live out that prison sentence? Or that consequences of being on probation for the rest of their life? Of course not. That's a consequence. And in David's case, he would have to live with the consequence of not having this child by Bathsheba, as well as consequences later with his own family, with his son Absalom.
In conclusion, as we consider this story, as we wrap things up, as we reflect upon this story, we know we live in a world that sometimes is, we have an inclination to cheat the system or try to cheat the system. You know, try to do things through the loopholes. Try to do things where maybe we can kind of, you know, do this. It's really, we're not supposed to do that. Maybe we can kind of cover it up. We don't want anyone knowing about that. It looks bad. We wanted something that we wanted. We got it kind of, you know, in a way that was in, in wrong. But we're going to cover it up. And we live kind of in a world where sometimes it's tempting to do that. In the case of David, we see that one act or one action led to another until he brought about destruction to much, much more than just himself. We must ask ourselves, in the, in the closets of our own lives, in the places where we think that no one's looking, what are we tempted to do? What are we tempted to cover up? And as we consider these things, as we try to search these areas out, we have to remember those spiritual principles that is, you know, I presented just a couple of which there's so many more we could talk about. We have to consider, you know, just exactly how grave the consequences of sin can be.